The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Philippians chapter 4. It's hard to believe, isn't it? We started this journey in May, and we are ending in Philippians today. Uh, Some of you would say with Philippians, amen, rejoice, we're through another book. But some of you I know are enjoy this, I know you all are, but thank God for that. Two weeks from today, we'll have a good mentor of mine, good friend of mine, John Mark Clifton, uh, from the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, will be here to speak uh, during our church picnic baby dedication. If there's anything else that day, let me know. Uh, There's a lot of stuff happening on August 30th, but he will be here. Uh, Many of you have asked, what are we doing next? Well, uh, you know we like to do verse-by-verse teaching. That's our main thing. We're going to take a little break, and uh, we've had over the last few months the Ask the Pastor. Uh, You've submitted questions about different things that I've done research for and hopefully helped answer. Uh, We've taken the most popular three of those uh, coming up, and I want to tell you what they are so you know. These are based on website hits and Facebook post hits. Uh, Is God a God of wrath? That'll be next week. Two weeks from now is John Mark. I'm not sure what he's speaking on. Labor Day weekend, does baptism save? And then number three will be, uh, is homosexuality a sin? These are questions you've asked, things that many of you have asked for a deeper study of, so hopefully the sermon will provide that. And uh, that's where we're headed the next few weeks. Then from there, we go and get swallowed by a big fish, or at least Jonah gets swallowed by a big fish. We'll be there for a couple months in the fall. Uh, Philippians chapter 4. You know, uh, you always love these proverbial stories, don't you? Some of you laugh more at my jokes than my wife will ever laugh at my jokes. And, uh, but here's one for you. There's a real story, or supposedly a real story, about a guy named Dwayne. And the doctor told him he had some bad news and some worse news. He said, Dwayne, you have 48 hours to live. Dwayne was stunned, and after a few moments, he asked, well, what could be worse than that, doctor? Tell me. And then his doctor replied, well, Dwayne, we've tried to text you, Facebook you, Twitter you, send you a letter, call you, and we've been trying to contact you since yesterday on all those points. 48 hours to live. Some of you guys, that will sink in after the sugar dies down from the bug camp. Look, sometimes news doesn't come the way we want it to, does it? It arrives late. It arrives in a way we don't like it. It arrives in a way we don't want it. That's the truth. And oftentimes people want certain methods or certain things to work out in their advantage. If I just do it this way, then it'll go that way. Well, friends, as Christians, we're reminded from Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, this. And David wrote, he said, Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Whether we have 48 hours left, 24 hours left, the Bible informs us that the strength of any Christian is not military might or getting the right political candidate in office or uh, going back to a golden era of America. If, if we could just go back to this time, for it's, it's only in the Lord our God, isn't it? And today, that's what we're going to look at as we finish Philippians Faith isn't a leap in the dark like Indiana Jones in the great last movie he had as he walked out. It's falling back into the arms of Christ. But what does it mean to be strong in the Lord? What does it mean to have strength in the Lord? We say that all the time, don't we? But what does it really mean? And better yet, how do I live a content or contented life in Christ despite living in this culture of me, me, me? Well, the big idea this week is very simple. It's that God's purpose for you individually and, uh, and for the y'all as the church, us all, is in Christ and in the gospel. He's big enough to captivate us. 
It's sweet enough to satisfy us, and it's strong enough to sustain us. Friends, that is the difference between a Christian strength and the worldly strength. You see, the tiniest faith, if it's real, receives the full riches of Christ and salvation, not a bit less than the biggest faith that someone might have. And doesn't, doesn't it seem this way, that when you depend on Christ, it often feels like great weakness? You ever felt that way before? But that's why we try and muscle through our trials and our strength, because we know that we can do it if we just give it enough energy. But friends, our power is when we fall on our knees before the Holy God and say, God, you are my strength. That is the power. So this morning, gospel-centered living. We went through this series uh, uh, in the very start of Philippians. But as we land this plan of Philippians, Paul gives us three more things that we need to look out if we're going to live that gospel-centered life to rejoice in Christ. He gives us three things. He says, let Christ be your strength. That'll be in verse 10 through 13. It'll say, let Christ be your supply, verses 14 through 20. And finally, let Christ be your satisfaction, verses 21 to 23. As we wrap this up, I just want to read an excerpt from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous commentator about the end of Philippians. He says this. He says, it's very important for us to realize that this is no mere formal ending to this letter. It was not just a casual, expressive phrase used by Paul. His apparent asides are often packed with doctrine, and his final greetings are full of truth and instruction. When we get to the beginning and the end of these letters, we often say, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Friends, it matters because all of God's word, every letter is God's word. Amen? And that is the truth. If you're able, if you'll join me in standing this morning, we will read verses 10 through 23. Know this is a lengthy section. If you need to sit, you feel free. Uh, you're not less holy by sitting, but in honor of God's word, if you're able, if you would join us in standing. That would be great. We're reading from the ESV this week, starting in verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now at length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to be abounding in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here's a famous verse many of you know. I can do all things through Christ or through him who strengthens me or gives me strength. Yet it was kind of you to share with my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me, giving and receiving, except you only or alone. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment more and more, and I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And here's a verse, if you're an underliner, another verse for you to underline. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To God our Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, verse 21. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Love God's word, don't you? An amazing thing. Let's go before the Lord as we start off today. Father, we thank you so much that you are faithful to us. Lord, we thank you so much that you're worthy to be worshipped because, Lord, you are. 
We thank you so much, Lord, because we know that in every circumstance, you are good. You are our strength. There's nothing else in this world. Father, I pray for anyone in our congregation who, uh, who may need to have that encouragement today, that it's not in worldly things. It's found in the riches of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Father, give us wisdom as we study. Thank you for this book of Philippians, but thank you for Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It's all your word, nothing more, nothing less, all sufficient, all inerrant, all inspired, to your honor and to your glory. Father, we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. May be seated. First thing Paul tells us is he says, let Christ be your strength. And I'm going to give you a couple sub points here as usual. You know there's always sub points as this comes through. But the first thing he says in verses 10 through 12 is Paul says to be content in God's plan. Be content in God's plan. Look back at verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now at length, and you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. This whole book of Philippians, you know it's been several years, probably at least 10 years since Paul had founded the Philippian church. And right from the start, the Philippians had outdone their giving to Paul more than any other church. Quite an amazing thing. In verse 15, he goes on to say this. He says, uh, very similarly, he says, You yourselves know that no church entered into partnership with me in giving. This church was very giving to Paul as a pastor, as a founder of the church. But Paul says, now at last, I've revived concern for him. The Philippians may have read this phrase, now at last, and they may have thought, Paul, um, didn't we uh, give you before? Or is this like a subtle rebuke you're trying to give us? You know this type of thing. It's when you've been thanked by someone, but you can hear it in the voice when they say, oh, thank you. You finally remembered me and decided to send me some help. You've been there before, right? Maybe you've said that before. But perhaps they weren't aware of Paul's recent needs. We don't know. Perhaps they didn't know where precisely he was or how to get a hold of him. But Paul reminds him, thank you. He tells him, I'm content. I think the first application point we have, church, is simply this. How you and I react to interruptions and irritations today reveals who I think is sovereign over my day every day. Think about that. You see, one of the greatest keys to enjoying a contentment-filled life to know that Christ is all you need starts with the fact that you know that he is sovereign. We have talked about that the last couple weeks. But let me go over this. You say, Darren, how sovereign is God? He's absolutely sovereign. He's in control over everything. You say, the big stuff, you mean like the weather, you know, the Chiefs and the Royals and the Sporting KC won last night. That's great. You mean he was sovereign over that? Yeah, he was too. But no, in everything. Romans eight twenty eight. many of you have this memorized. And we know that cause, God causes some things... No. The big things? Tina, you said it. What is it? It's all things. That's right. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And Ephesians 1.11 tells us further, it says, the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. God is not just sovereign over the big things. Friends, he knows the number of hairs on your head, some more than others. Amen? Sparrows are sold for a penny, Jesus said, but not one of them to dies apart from the sovereign providence of God. Paul could look and say, look, I am content because God is sovereign. I know whether you get what I'm saying to you, Philippians, I thank you for that gift. But he moves on. Still under that same subpoint, but in Philippians 4.11, he says, not that I'm speaking of the being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That's a prayer for your Christian life, church. It's a prayer for you, Christian. He says, he wants to correct that misunderstanding, so he says, not that I speak from want, 
Paul wasn't someone who found satisfaction in a healthy, big, fat bank account. His joy, his satisfaction, his contentment was rooted much deeper in that. Can you imagine what it was? Have we talked about it the last 12, 13 weeks? What was his joy? It was in Jesus Christ, the gospel. And he believes it would do a disservice to the Philippians if he misled them any other way. He goes on to say that no matter what is happening around him, that Christ is his joy. Look back at verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Friends, in every situation, his happiness, his joy, his everything was found in the fact that God loved him in Christ Jesus. What is your joy today? And we know that it is to be acquired gradually because Paul uses a Greek form here that communicates this lesson over and over. Paul didn't just learn contentment one time. If you have in your Bible, some of your Bibles will say in verse 12, I'm learning to be content. You might see it in a a kind of a learning sense. Paul didn't just learn contentment one time. It's a lesson he learned time and time and time again. You say, Darren, um, I know God works all things for my good, but I still struggle with trusting him through it all. Friends, let's take a lesson from Paul here. He learned that his experiences and circumstances were a gift from God, no matter how hard they were. He learned as he pled with the Lord, you may remember this in 2 Corinthians 12, that God's grace is sufficient for his people. You remember Paul prayed that. He had a thorn in his side. We don't know what that is. People said blindness, it was sickness. Honestly, we don't know. But one thing we do know is God told Paul this. Therefore, I am well content, Paul said, with weaknesses and insults and distresses, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then what? I'm strong. It's a good lesson for us. I think the takeaway is this. Second, second application point for you is be content. Stop complaining. Serve happily in God's measure of faith and giftedness. Be content in God's plan for you. Are you satisfied with that? You say, look, as we talked about last week, this is not just saying, well, I'm okay. I'm just going to be okay till Christ returns. That's not what he's saying. Press on towards Christ, but know whatever Christ may bring your way, that is the best place for you to be. He goes on. He says, not only be content in God's plan to let Christ be your strength, but he says, be confident in God's power. Be confident in God's power. Just out of curiosity, how many have Philippians 4.13 memorized or know this verse very, very well? A lot of hands go up. You know, this might be the most popular verse in the Bible outside John 3.16. Everyone writes it on their little football things. You're getting the football season. They put it underneath their, their eyes. But it's also one of the most misquoted and misunderstood verses in the Bible. Did you know that? You know, I know you think I'm strong, and I appreciate that. Many of you think I can bench press 500 pounds. I really do appreciate that. But I can be honest with you, even if I quote this verse and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, you're going to see me in the morgue when that weight falls on my chest and I can't breathe anymore. You guys know what I'm talking about. This verse is pulled so much out of context. What is Paul saying? He's saying that whether he's well-fed or hungry, whether he has a rich bank account or he's struggling to make ends meet, what this verse teaches is that your contentment, Paul's contentment, is Christ Jesus I can do all things. Literally, Paul could weather any storm that God sent his way and rejoice in it all because the power of contentment doesn't come from what's happening around you. The power to know contentment is Christ. Paul was not self-sufficient. He was God-sufficient, if you want to say it that way. So how do you live this verse out? I think the application point is this. If you want to let Christ be your strength, 
then you must, you, we must not be content with the success of our ministries or whatever's going on in your life. I know it's kind of going off the screen there. I'll just read it for you. It says, we must not be content with success of our ministries. Friends, we must not be content until Christ reigns over every square inch of this world. Amen? You say, I'm struggling with this, Darren. I want Christ to be my strength. Will you pray? Pray for other people. Pray that God would take over your workplace with the gospel. Pray that you'd be a light in your family. Pray that God would send you wherever he will to make that happen. How do you do this? How do you be content then with Christ? Two things. You need to commune with Christ. You need to commune with Christ. The great Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs said that we must act our faith upon Christ. It means we have to trust him. We have to trust that his word says that he will take care of us, and he does. And we have to trust that he is the one who's sufficient to be all of our strength, and he is. We have to take time to spend with Christ. Friend, can I ask you, we said this almost every other week, are you spending time with Jesus Christ? Does your TV time outweigh your time with Jesus Christ this week? Think about that. Also, be obedient to his word. There's another thing. Disobedient people should not be discontented. Divine strength comes from knowing Christ through his word. If we are walking in sin, we should not be surprised when we experience the unrest of anxiety and discontentment. Look, if you know Jesus Christ, you're going to have sin in your life, even this side of heaven. Don't let sin rule your life, but know that you have to own up to that. Husband, have you forgiven your wife? Wife, have you forgiven your husband for things that have been said? Have you moved past some things? Have you confessed those thoughts that have passed through your head? Whatever it is, have you trusted that Christ is enough? Even in sin, Christ is your strength. But if you're not a Christian here today, you say, man, Darren, it sounds like, again, you're just talking to like a Buddhist guru. We're just going to go up on a mountain and, and just stay in a cave and be a, a cave dweller for the rest of our lives. That's contentment, right? Be a hermit out in the middle of nowhere. Not what we're talking about at all. But if you're not a Christian here today, I pray that you are not content until you know the love that is in Jesus Christ. You never will be. Friends, there's no greater love, half a man, that, that God laid down his life for his friends in Jesus Christ. Do you know him today? Now, I read a story about a guy, a little kid named Alex, came running to his grandpa's study and was amazed at what he saw. His grandpa was calmly feeding $1 bills through the shredder. Now, I don't know about you, but if that happened to me, I would be very upset. And being an inquisitive little guy and never seeing this before, he said, Grandpa, what on earth are you doing? And the old man turned to his grandson and explained. He said, well, your grandma and I are getting ready to fly out to Las Vegas to do some gambling at the casino. So I'm just practicing everything before we go. Be careful what you trust in. Be careful what you trust is your strength. What Christ wants is this. This sounds like the Pony Express ad from St. Joe, but what Christ wants are ordinary, Christ wants ordinary men and women whose education, experience, prestige, strength are not required. Bring your cross, though. Leave your big shot status at home, and let's go out and win the world for Jesus Christ. That's how you can do all things through him. Friends, what have you found today that's undermining your concern for him? Is there something in your life that you say, I know, I know, Pastor, that this is in my life, but I don't know what to do about it. Or have you sought the Lord? Friends, he is enough strength for you. He's enough strength for anything you may face. You say, well, Darren, I'm just too caught up in myself. Can I pray? Can I ask you that you would spend more time serving others at that point? Use yourself up for others. God made us to live like that. 
Christianity really makes sense when we tangle our lives in the messy web of relationships that is the human experience in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is Christ your strength? And he moves on. He says, not only is is Christ your strength, if you want to live this gospel-centered life, he says, let Christ be your supply. Let Christ be your supply is the second point. And he kind of starts out in verses 14 through 17. He says, the first sub-point is, God will prosper you. God will prosper you. Paul just told us, he said, how true it is. You can be content in Christ. You can be happy and joyful no matter what life throws your way. But he says in verse 14, he says, let me tell you, Philippians, he says, you have done well in giving me this sacrificial gift. And he goes on in verse 15, and he says, uh, get it here, he says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you alone. And Paul knows, again, it has been over 10 years. I don't know, you've prayed for missionaries, many of you have given to missionaries. It's hard when you don't get a letter from them. Think, what is God doing? Are they alive? Are they still breathing? Are they God working through them? But Paul says, please don't misunderstand, Philippians. I do appreciate your gift. It touches my very heart. And then as if he recognizes that kind of gratefulness can sound a little over the top, it can kind of sound fake, he goes on to verse 17. Look back at verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases on your credit. He says, Philippians, the reason that I am rejoicing and praising you in this letter is your giving is becoming a spiritual blessing through me to the people that are hearing the gospel. And I am after that prophet, is, which is to your spiritual account. You know, sometimes when you're writing or talking to people, it's one of the most difficult things you can ever do. Ever felt that way before? You need to mention something to someone, but you've you got to be bold, but you've got to be tactful, but you've got to be balanced. Have you ever been there before, parents? Have you ever talked to someone like that before? You know you need to have those conversations? That's what Paul's doing. It's really lovely to observe this, friends. Paul walks a fine line of tactful courtesy and theological accuracy. Some of you in this room are not very concerned sometimes about the things you say, think, or even might unintentionally communicate are not the things of Scripture. Would you pray that this week? Would you pray that your mouth, our mouths, would be filled with the truths of Scripture, not the other way around? His example provides a rebuke for the kind of laziness and urges us to bring the truth to bear, but with grace. Be bold, but be graceful. You know, and some of you in this room, I'm like this to an extent. We want to cross every theological T and dot every theological I. But the problem is we take that theology sword and, boy, we just swipe. We're, we're, going in the, we're just swiping people down. But Paul goes out of his way to choose his words carefully and his tone very carefully not to cause any unnecessary offense. He tells them, look, God's going to prosper you. You are not going to have a Lamborghini. You're not going to always be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. But Philippians, you've given. Therefore, God will increase your spiritual extension. Friends, and this is why I want to just say this one thing. Prosperity can't be proof of God's favor, since it is what the devil promised to those who worship him in Matthew 4, 9. Did you ever think about that? Friends, Christ-honoring giving like the Philippians is God will prosper you spiritually. Don't give so that you can go buy a new house. Give so Christ would advance the gospel in the world. Paul says at least three or four things. I'll go through these quickly. These aren't on the screen. But true Christian giving, you know what it does? When you give, like Paul says... It says it leads to fellowship. You ever think about that? William Carey, the great uh, man of modern missions, said, 
when he was leaving England to go to India, back when they didn't know much about India, he said, brothers, I will go down if you hold the rope. And I think what this little section from Paul's reading tells us is that you may not be able to go be a missionary, but you can give to it. Friends, we are praying that we would give faithfully to the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention, Lottie Moon, Annie Armstrong, all those things, because Christ honor and giving leads to fellowship. You know what Christ honor and giving also does? It's rooted in biblical fellowship, genuine fellowship. When we are giving sacrificially, what does that do to us? It brings us closer together. True Christian giving doesn't only lead to fellowship, it's rooted in it. I think you also learn from this section that giving is driven by the gospel. Friends, we don't give just because there's a budget. We say this all the time. We give because there are people who need Christ. There are people who need to know that message. And how in the world, think about this. Paul was a Jew, wasn't he? The Philippians were Gentiles. What in the world could take an arrogant, self-centered, racist Jew like Paul in the first century and make a group of arrogant, racist, self-centered Gentiles in the first century, century come together? Friends, it was the gospel. That's what binds us together as Christians. And Paul gives us those things. So he says, look, have you, Philippians, seen that God will prosper you spiritually? But then he goes on in verse 18, and he tells us that God will be pleased with you. Not only will God prosper you, but God will be pleased with you as your supply. Look back at verse 18. Paul says this. He says, I've received full payment and more, and I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. He just qualified his praise of them. He said he's, he's not just prying for more money, but again, doubt, unless they doubt Paul's appreciation, he adds, adds the comment to assure them that this is genuine. We love it. Uh, we won't go there, but from 2 Corinthians 8, we know that this church of Philippi was in a very poor region. Think about the poorest area you can think of. It was probably less poor than that. They were giving out of everything they had. They were giving even out of their poverty, 2 Corinthians 8 tells us. You say, well, Darren, that brings up an interesting topic. You're a pastor. There's a church. You have to make money, right? You have to do this. So the big question, Pastor Darren, is how much money should I give to the church? Oh, contraire. Here's a great question, isn't it? Is it 10%? It's a great question. Friends, the tithing in the Old Testament was binding upon Israel, and there was a certain number. But the New Testament doesn't give us a number. In fact, the principle that I can give you is that it should cost you something. True Christian giving should be generous and sacrificial. I mean, think about it. If we know Christ, how can we but not give to the things of his? It shouldn't cost us anything. And my prayer is this for our church, is that we would have the same spirit as the Philippians that they had, that no matter what is facing their way, they wouldn't hold back the gift to God, but they would give it. Look, friends, you don't give because I'm pastor. You don't give because we have great music by our worship team. We don't give because there's children's programs. We give for what reason? Christ is Lord. That's why tithing is obedience 101. Tithing is obedience 101. It's entry-level discipleship. Um, I will post on our Facebook page and send through email. Uh, there's an article we put in our new member's guide about 10 principles about giving, things you need to be reminded of, I need to be reminded of. But Paul tells us a couple things. Look at verse 18. He says it's, a, he said it's generous and sacrificial. He also says that giving is an act of worship. Look at the end of verse 18 again, guys. He says, fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Wow. 
Sometimes we give our tithe check and I'm writing it. I just think, oh, it's just another week. It's just another week. We give because it's an act of worship. That's why we do it during the worship service. Dave, thank you for leading up our usher ministry. The dream job of all things. Amen. And that's why we do it. Friends, our giving is catapulted merely out of giving because someone else is giving. It's catapulted because God gave his best for us, and that's what it is. That's why when we're gathered, we do that very thing. Do you believe that? Have you given faithfully this week? You say, Darren, well, what's the magic number? Have you prayed about that? Have you prayed about what God would have you give? But are you giving sacrificially? Are you giving as an act of worship? In church, I know you do. I've seen it the last three months. Pray about it. Give, because that's what keeps us going to the gospel. There, that's my aside. You can, you can take a deep breath now. The giving, the giving part is over for a little bit. Amen? Amen. Friends, God says that he will not only prosper us if we give spiritually, he will prosper that gift. He will be pleased with us because that gift is an act of worship. But finally, in this point of God being our supply, he will provide for you. What a great blessing. Look back at verse 19. If you're, again, if you're an underliner, I would encourage you to underline this. He says, and my God will supply every need of yours, every need of yours, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God our Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says the source of this giving is who? It's God. He doesn't say, uh, Paul says, my God will do what I'm in a position not to do. Philippians, I don't know how you're going to get this money, but God will provide it. You know, many of you have told me a story about the roof, and I, Natalie, I'm not sure I've told you this whole story yet, but this roof above us came to be, didn't it, through some special giving. Many of you know that story that just, just by God's providence in prayer, this roof was provided for a few thousand dollars It wasn't there and was. It wasn't some magic wand or we didn't spell it out in our Cheerios. It was by the faithful giving and faithful prayers of, and the acting of a faithful God that did that. Friends, the source of every gift is God himself, and it's a certain thing. He says, Paul does not just say God will supply all your need, or will not supply all your need, but he says God will supply it. It's not that he's ever failed me. God has never failed me. He's never failed me yet. He will supply every need of yours. But that's the big question, isn't it? What are these needs that he's talking about? And he says some of your needs, most of your needs. No, my God will supply every need of yours. Spiritual needs especially. You say, Darren, I want to know God closer, but he just seems so far away. Have you prayed to him? Have you sought him? Well, you say, Darren, I've given faithfully to the Lord for decades, and I have material needs. Uh, my friend, do you have needs or do you have wants? It's a good question I'd ask myself as I went through this passage. God, I really would like to see this happen, but is that a need or is that a want? Paul doesn't promise that God will supply every wish of ours. The text doesn't say he will supply every luxury of ours. Thank God for that. I think of that old story, I don't remember the name of it, some of you can correct me, where the guy, it's an old fable, he touched anything and it became gold. Do you remember that story? And what happened to him? He ended up, he didn't like it because everything he touched was gold. And if I remember the story right, some of you will help me. He touched his family and they became gold. Is that not correct? Friends, we have to be careful what we wish for. God is good in providing exactly what we need, not more than that. And that is it. And he goes on, he says, who supplies this? God? How? In Christ Jesus? Friends, there is no greater gift. If I can beat the dead horse that we're going to beat for a long time, because it's so true, there's no greater gift in creation except Christ Jesus. In Christ are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, Colossians tells us. And God has blessed us, Ephesians says, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
So what does Paul do with this? Does he say, oh, just pray, it'll be there? No. Here's what Paul does. This truth is so great for Paul. Look back at verse 20. This is what Paul, this is what Paul does. He says, to God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul can't even fathom the thought. He just gets in this, he just busts out his praise, man. He gets his praise on, and he just lets it loose. And that's what Paul tells us. He says, the only proper response to theology is doxology. The only proper response. If you know what Christ has done for you in the cross, the only thing you can do is sing and praise him about it. Amen? Friends, that's why it's so important that you do that. For even in eternity, we will not be enough praising of God that it will be worth God's name. We can never outpraise God because he's infiniteless. Heard a story about a donut shop, shop seller. It went something like this. Each morning on his way to work, this donut shop person would uh, basically see a man. And this man would give this donut shop worker 50 cents. He never picked up a donut, just invested in the livelihood of this person who would be out on the streets in all kinds of weather making a livelihood. And after about six months of this routine, the, wo- or the man finally asked to speak with the person one day and uh, he gained a laugh and said, you probably want to know why I give you 50 cents every day and never take a donut. But the donut worker said, nope, I don't care. I just wanted you to know that starting Monday, the donuts are going up to $2 a piece. <laughs> Again, be careful what you trust and don't shred your bills. Be careful what careful what you invest in. You never know what's out there. Friends, God is our supply. Proverbs tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all ways and he will make your path straight. Friend, today God is enough supply for whatever you're facing in your life. He is. He's sufficient. He's uh, Jehovah Jireh, as the Old Testament says, the all-sufficient one, the provider. But knowing God does not mean you have to pretend that your circumstances are okay. Look, we did a funeral last week for the heirs' family, and if you've been for a funeral, you know it's okay to grieve. Friends, it's okay to grieve. Uh, a lot of people uh, done funerals for before um, just, well, I'm okay. Man, they're hurting inside. It is okay to show grief. Friends, you are, some of you are going through some very tough times. We're praying for you. But know that God is sufficient even in those darkest of times. And as a church, we must trust God with everything, our budget, our sufficient space, our meeting opportunities, everything we have goes to Christ because that is his and we are simply stewards of it. We should be confident and generous in supporting everything that we have here because God is our supplier. You know, Judy and I have our staff meeting every Monday morning. We pray for that. We pray through the needs of the church as a staff and oftentimes I, uh, we take notes every week. We'll review. We have the wins of the week. What did God do this last week? Judy can testify with me that there are things we prayed for a week or two before and boom, God has just come out of nowhere and answered that need. And every one of you in here can testify to that very thing. Amen? God is good. Let's go on to the last point. Paul tells us, he says, you want to live the gospel-centered life, let Christ be your strength. Let Christ be your supply. Lastly, let Christ be your satisfaction. Let Christ be your satisfaction. First up point here is he says, we are his saints. Look back at verses 21 and 22. Paul tells the Philippians, he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. Remember, he's in prison. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Paul just went from this great truth that God is going to meet all your needs, and he busts out into praise. He just praises God, and all he can say is, praise the Lord. Amen. And now he goes to the ending. And this isn't just any ending. He's making it very clear here. Though we tend to skip over verses like this, Paul has a good point for us. 
Paul wasn't being polite or just repeating words. His words are very intentional. First, he charges the overseers and the deacons. Look at back at verse 21. He says, greet every saint. Greet every saint. Friends, this letter, again, was read before the church. These leaders were accountable. If you go back, take your Bible, go back to chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, if you go back there with me very quickly, Paul says in chapter 1, I remember this from the first sermon, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Friends, we are his saints. If you're a Christian here today, you are his saint. That's the first sub-point. But Paul makes it very clear that he is writing to remind these leaders especially the leaders, that their satisfaction is not in how much giving the church has, not how much or how many people show up at their church. Their satisfaction as leaders is knowing Jesus Christ. Friends, as your pastor, would you pray that for me? God has blessed us here with numbers in recent weeks. We've seen a lot of people come through our services, a lot of people come through back to school. But would you pray that as a pastor, as a leader here, that all of our leaders, deacons included, our joy, our satisfaction is knowing that we are his and he is mine. That is it. And then the question comes up, we go back to chapter 4, what's a saint? What is a saint? Many of you say, well, he's a saint, he's really nice, or, you know, I went to this church one time and they had saints all up there. Let me be very clear what a saint is. A saint is not someone that has been mummified for centuries that we bow down and worship. I think I've shared this story with you before. When I lived in Mexico in Guadalajara, they, we used to walk up to the central downtown place. The oldest cathedral in Guadalajara in Mexico was there, and they had mummified remains. And people would tell me they would walk on their knees up to the, the casket, uh, the glass casket, and they'd kiss it. And the more they kissed it, the more they thought two things, God loved them and that God would wipe away their sins in purgatory. Friends, I am grateful that we are saved once by Christ and Christ alone. That's what a saint is. A saint is someone who has repented, turned away from their sin, and believed that Jesus Christ died, lived the perfect life, and gave everything for them. Would you pray for those people who don't have that gospel? But what else? J.C. Ryle, the great writer, said this. He said, the poorest saint, the poorest Christian that ever died in a ghetto is no more nobler in his sight, God's sight, than the richest sinner that ever died in a palace. Aren't you grateful for that? If Paul died in a jail cell and was executed by, by Caesar, that means that he's no greater than us. We are all equal in Christ. Friends, that's been my prayer for us the last few weeks as pastor, that we would have such a church here that we would experience and grow in the depth and fellowship with one another. Perhaps more than anything, my prayer as your pastor has been that the grace of God working through his word as we study the book of Philippians would lead you into greater and more intimate enjoyment of Christ with one another. That's our prayer. Look, if we just show up each week and just do our thing and go home, we could just be called a union on Sundays without the gospel. But friends, we have the gospel. That's what binds us together. That we would be a fellowship group not, known not only for sound teaching, but also for our love for one another. It's been my prayer. That we would be invest in the lives of each other, that we would feel that practical love that a family, a, a family of God has for one another, that there would be gospel-driven intimacy in all that we do. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the man who I quoted first, he says, It does seem to me that through a thorough test of our whole position as Christian people, the question is this, do we feel a special interest in other Christian 
people. To however you do, we, would you pray this week that we would have that gospel-centeredness in our relationships? I think there are many of you who do, and it's a joy to me to watch it. I know many of you have had that for many years, but pray that more take root in this. Pray that our church isn't just say, hey, I saw you last Sunday. How's it going? Maybe it's something we take through the week. That's what Philippians is all about. Why, are, why do we do this? Because Christ is our satisfaction. Well, let me end with this. Friends, we have his grace. We have his grace. The Apostle Paul ended with a magnificent thing. He said, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you and your spirit. Boy, the reason that it's all so, because grace is the sum and substance of all that we do as a church. Friends, it's the foundation of everything we do. Grace. When someone offends you, it's grace. When someone uh, needs correction, it's grace. From start to finish, from salvation to justification to sanctification to glorification, all those big words, from start to finish with Christ, it is all by grace. All by grace. Everything is of grace. That's why God, the last application point for you as we close is this. God relentlessly offers his grace to people who don't deserve it, seek it, or appreciate it, even after they've been saved by it. Do you believe that? Friends, God has given you grace. He's given me grace. He's given this church so much grace. You know, sometime in the future, we're going to vote on a new church budget. Steve, I see you back there, our financial guy. Thank you for doing this uh, every year. We, you know, we don't plan on shrinking back even in uncertain times. Friends, our money, our giving goes forward with the gospel because we are people of grace. Even when the culture does a 180 on us, we are people of grace, and everything we do flows out of that because we are acting on behalf and belief of that God will supply our needs. Amen? We believe that every week. As we live lives worthy of the gospel, it's not to bring glory to ourselves. It's for God's glory alone because it's by grace. If you got closer to God this week, it's by grace. If you got along with your spouse who's another Christian this week, it is by grace. If you saw more of God's work in, in the lives of your family you've been praying for, thank God it's by grace. Everything we do is by grace. End with this story. Many of you know in 1977, 1970s, the Great Alaskan Pipeline was brought to bear. And it's such a great story. You know, I often ask, how did people get to Alaska? They built a pipeline that went hundreds of miles. That's how they got there usually. But people were working out in some terrible conditions. And it wasn't appealing even to those who lived there. They're trying to recruit all these workers and to combat this complacency to get people energized about this new pipeline. A campaign was launched to mail catalogs to Alaskan residents. And the strategy was designed to create a hunger for things so people would be motivated. And their plan worked. People worked and they got certain gifts. They built 800 miles of pipe in three years through Alaskan. I've never been there. Some of you have. Alaskan wilderness. I'm looking at the Hinkles. You used to live there before. It's crazy. But the one thing they found with the simple idea of making people seem discontented, not happy, a huge workforce was mobilized to battle the fierce elements and complete this amazing task. And what this reminds us is, is that contentment and discontentment are very powerful tools. Christian, if you want to be satisfied with Christ, if you want to know him, can I ask you a very direct question? How is your complaining going this week? How's your complaining going? There's an unstoppable reflex to always ask why, God, why, God, why, God, why. Friends, it's part of God's image in us. We want to know why all these things. 
But what are the present evidences of God's working in your life? Look, you may not know. Some of you have lost family members, and we are so sorry for that. You may ask that question, God, why? But at some point, you need to say, God, I don't, I grieve for them. I don't know, but Lord, give me the strength. Satisfy my soul with you and your gospel. Help me to know that even if I don't have the answer, I trust that you are sufficient. Friends, some of you need to ask this question. You say, I'm, I'm just not happy because God is done working in my life. Praise the Lord. He doesn't stop working when you're 31 or you're 97. God works on you until the very last moment that you walk away. Friends, God is faithful. He will continue to pursue you as a beloved child because that's the kind of God he is. And whatever undermines your ability to trust God is the very enemy of your soul. Trust him. He's faithful. Friends, that is our God. Let me end with the, that we started with. God's purpose for you is this, that he is big enough to captivate, he's sweet enough to satisfy, and strong enough to sustain. That is our God. Friends, if you don't know that God today, then I pray that you do. I pray that you do. God became a man in Christ Jesus to satisfy the demands of his justice. We sinned against him. We'd given him nothing but rebellion, and he gave us nothing but his righteous son to take our place. He lived, Christ lived a perfect life, fully God, fully man, died on a cross, and all the wrath that should have came on us, it was sucked up by Jesus Christ, to use that word, and it was satisfied on the cross. And when Christ said, it is finished, it wasn't, oh man, it's finished and I gotta go do something else. It was enough in Jesus Christ. I wish my uh, former employers, when I worked secular jobs, would have said, if you just come in for one hour this week, it is finished for the rest of the week. You all would sign up for that so quick that you don't even know what would happen. But if you're not a Christian here today, there is nothing more satisfying to your soul than Jesus Christ. But don't come to Jesus just for what he does. Come to Jesus because he tells us to flee from the wrath of God to come and that he is the only Savior that is worthy of trust. He rose from the dead, and he says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God, what? Raised him from the dead. You will be saved. That's the gospel. I hope you enjoyed Philippians. hope you did. God's an amazing God. Amen. Let's go before the Lord today. Father, it's been a busy week. We've had a funeral in this congregation. We've had back to school the last couple weeks, Lord. We've had just a lot of things going on in our church with a lot of busyness. Father, there's been a lot of activity, and we are so grateful for that activity, Lord. We pray again for spiritual fruit to come forth from the outreaches we've encountered, the people we've encountered. Lord, so many great people, but Father, people who need to know your Son. Father, we pray that Tower View, that you would be our strength, our supply, and our satisfaction. Father, if we dwindled down to just me and my wife and a couple other people, Father, we pray that you would be honored and glorified. But Father, if you make us as big as the five million person church, if that's even possible, Lord, that we would be satisfied that you are our strength, supply, and satisfaction. Lord, whatever you bring, may we trust that you are our all, because you are enough. Father, that's the message of Philippians, that the gospel in your son is enough for us. Father, I pray for any very personal needs in this room. Lord, many have material needs. We pray for those things. Father, we, we pray for those things because you say, seek you in all things. Father, we pray for those who maybe have gotten off the trail, so to speak, with, with you. We pray that they would come back to you and find you as the only satisfaction. Father, we thank you so much for each one in this church. Thank you for the privilege it is to be their pastor. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to be your people through your son and only through your son in whose name we pray. And God's people said.